We're in a six-part series right now uh, after we're in between Epiphany and coming up on Lent, and so we're in the after Epiphany uh, time period in the church calendar, and we're in a series called Recreate. And the idea in this series is around the creative energy and potential that we have access to being made in the image of God. And we thought this would be a particularly relevant series when we're all so weary and feel like every day, at least I know for me, is like a groundhog day. What would it be like to explore the connection between the human and the divine and the creativity that is a part of that essential connection that we have? And so uh, last week, uh, Robert Grisham preached a wonderful message on uh, how we're connected to others creatively in terms of how we exercise our freedom, the creativity and responsibility there. Before that, uh, Diane uh, preached the week before on our connection and relationship to other people and how creativity and, and resentment uh, are at play within us at different times in relationships. And those are great messages. If you haven't heard them, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. This week... What we're going to explore together in the time that we have is the inexhaustible creativity that we have access to through our connection to God. Now, what I'm not saying is that we have inexhaustible creativity, but that we have access to it. And so we're going to explore that idea here together in the book of Isaiah chapter 40. And I'm going to pray for us as we move into that time together. So, Lord, would you minister to us through your words? Would you help us to be present enough to hear what you might be speaking to us, to feel encouraged, to feel challenged, to feel lifted up, uh, to feel like we can connect with you, um, that we can see your work even if our lives feel so ordinary or so filled with grief or so repetitive right now. We pray that we would be able to see things with a new perspective as we look through the perspective of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, many of you probably know by now uh, that I'm, I'm an artist as well as a pastor. And, uh, you know, creativity is obviously part of that conversation. And, uh, you know, in, in my life, there's been a conversation about creativity and where does that energy come from and where do your ideas come from? Uh, just a funny thing that I think it's funny. Uh, this doesn't necessarily have to do with creativity. It does have to do with this topic, so maybe it does. Uh, but the, the question I most often get asked when somebody sees a, a work of, of art of mine is, so how long did that take you? Uh, that's, that's the number one question. And I always think that's a curious question to ask when looking at a piece of art. But it, it really makes sense because creativity takes time. And it takes energy. And we live in a culture and a society that when a global pandemic hit us, we tried to keep up the same pace of living. We immediately found out how to do 
all the same level of work, all the same expectations on everybody through Zoom and all these other things without batting an eye. And everybody was so tired already. And then you throw this in and it just shows that we've got a disconnect in our culture between what does it take to live an inspiring and creative life and rest and rest. And in this passage here, we see Isaiah hitting on these ideas, uh, hitting on the ideas of that one of the most sacred tasks that we have as human beings that we are often so neglectful of is a restful, waiting, believing, and actively resting slower pace of life, an intentional rest. And that this can actually lead us to doing less things maybe, but doing things better, having better ideas, more hope, and a deeper sense of contentment in our life. And so what I want to do for the next few minutes is just look at some parts of this passage in Isaiah and see how is it that this inexhaustible creativity that God has can be connected to us through rest. So let's look at this passage here, starting in verse 21. The writer starts by asking a bunch of rhetorical questions uh, to the readers, to the hearers of this. It says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? So that first verse, you know, uh, to put it in, in common English, it's like, oh, so you don't remember this? Like, are, are, are you serious? You really, you're, you're acting like this doesn't, this hasn't even happened? This doesn't exist? Because what the writer is about to say here is something that his audience would be well acquainted with. The story of the Hebrew God that they worshipped. And so in verse 22, he starts to, in very poetic and beautiful language, he begins to re-articulate and re-explain and reignite in people's minds and hearts this picture of God that his audience would have been familiar with. He says, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. So part of the reason why we can't rest long enough uh, in order to access the creativity that God has waiting and stored for us is because we forget who God is and also who we are. And the writer knows that through the inspiration of God and intuition and all types of things here, he's able to articulate this by starting at this point. Don't you remember? Don't you know this? So the first step is remembering who God is. And that means to remember that we are not God. And I know that sounds like, oh, of course I'm not God, Jamin. Like, come on, man. I don't think I'm God. But here's, here's, here's what I mean by that. We could talk about a lot of things related to that. But here's, here's what I want to say. Your current understanding, opinions, and attitudes are not the final word on what's happening in the world. That you're, the way you see things right now, you don't have it all figured out. Not even close. 
Uh, and, and I'm really thankful that each of our small perceptions of what's happening in the world and why things are happening or even what's going on in just your relationship right now, I'm thankful that that's not the whole truth because that would reduce the world to something much smaller and much more petty even than what it really is. Now, what I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is that there are not knowable things. There's lots of knowable things. We wouldn't be able to shoot somebody into space and have satellites and uh, internet memes if there weren't knowable things, right? <laughs> but, uh, but what we know in percentage to what we don't know is often really mismatched in our own heads. You know, we think, well, we know about this much and here's about what's unknown. And really what we know and is knowable is about this big and what's unknowable is, is infinitely larger than I could, I could stretch my arms. So um, let me give you just a really simple example. Have you ever been talking to somebody? I sure have because I've talked to people uh, from a stage for most of my adult life in some capacity. But have you ever been talking to somebody and you're looking at their face while you're talking and you're sure they hate your guts? You're absolutely, you know they hate you. They, you know that they don't like anything you have to say. Have you, ever, have you ever experienced that? Anybody? Yeah? Or maybe the opposite's true. Maybe you, you've been talking or sharing with somebody and you're looking at their face and by the look on their face, they're like, oh, this person loves me. Oh, I'm definitely going to get this date. Oh, we're definitely going to get married. This is going to go where I want it to go, or I'm going to get that raise. And in either one of those situations, you find out, oh, I was so sure of this thing based on my perception of reality, but in fact, I was completely wrong. I know that's happened for me uh, many, many times. It could even be happening right now. I don't even know, right? through my little window here, right? <laughs> um, it's, it seems so obvious, but, but Isaiah's almost sarcastic question here reminds us of the smallness and the limitedness of our understanding. And uh, we would think that ancient people who don't have the internet or satellites or memes, that they'd be more humble about what they, what they understand and, and don't understand, but it seems to be a reoccurring theme of humanity, that we really never know how much we really don't know. We don't know what we don't know, and we don't know that we don't know it. So here's what the situation is for the audience. They're the Israelites, what we know uh, to call through the scriptures as the people of God, and they have been taken from their homes forcibly, into a place called Babylon. And Babylon was the center of the ancient world at this time. They were the, the biggest superpower. And they'd been there for nearly 70 years. And so their current way of thinking about what was true about the world, because a whole generation has grown up, two generations have grown up now in Babylonian exile, their whole orientation to the world, what they thought was true was closely connected to what they'd experienced in Babylon. And so the writer here is reminding them that, look, things, the way things look now are not a reflection of who God is. The way that you see reality right now is not the whole story. 
It's not everything there is to see and there is to know. And I want you to know that because I want you to have hope because there's something on the horizon that God is doing and I want you to be able to see it and recognize it and be a part of it. But in order to do that, you have to shake off the numbness of this small understanding of the world and be able to remember the grandness, the awesomeness of this God that your uh, family and your ancestors have taught you about the stories of old, the things that God has been doing in the past, that you could be shocked back into a place of wonder and possibility. How, how many of us are surprised right now by what happens around us. I want you to think about that. Have you been legitimately like really surprised recently? I would, I would imagine in the unpredictability of our world <laughs> that we would be surprised a lot more than we are. I mean, I know January 6th was kind of surprising, but there's just... Uh, as many people that would say, I knew that was going to happen. I told you so. I knew it. I knew that the Capitol would be stormed. Right. You knew that. Sure you did. I knew that the, that the, that the financial crisis of 2008 was going to happen. I totally knew that. No, you didn't know that. You knew it because it's already happened. So you can look back and say, oh, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. That's easy to do. But here's the thing. We have a hard time remembering the past and Isaiah knows that, the writer knows that, and the way that we remember or don't remember the past directly impacts our ability to be surprised by the present. And if we're not being surprised by what's happening in the present, it means we're losing out on an opportunity to have faith in a God that is surprising that can do things that we can't fathom, that we can't understand, that we cannot predict, and we surely can't say, I knew that was going to happen. There's a, um, a, a, a Jewish psychologist named Daniel Kahneman, and he won the, 2000, or, yeah, the 2002 Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences. And he wrote this book recently called Thinking Fast and Slow. Anybody heard of that book, Thinking Fast and Slow? I love these kind of books. And, and he's got some things to say about how our mind deals with the past and the present that I want to share with you because it really ties into what we're talking about in this scripture. Here's, here's what he says about our limitations and how we view things from the past and the present. He says, a general limitation of the human mind is its imperfect ability to reconstruct past states of knowledge or beliefs that have changed. Once you adopt a new view of the world or any part of it, you immediately lose much of your ability to recall what you used to believe before your mind changed. So point in case, the Israelites in Babylon not being able to remember what life was like before that, not even being able to remember how they thought about life before that, here was an example that they gave in the research. They, they brought uh, some, some volunteers in, some participants in, to uh, study their opinion and their attitudes about the death penalty. So first, they asked them to share their attitudes. 
And then after each person shared their attitudes, then they were each given a persuasive message that was either for or against the death penalty. Then after that, they measured those people's attitudes again. And what they found most of the time is that their attitudes were closer to and their beliefs were closer to whichever kind of message they heard. So if they heard a message that was pro-death penalty, then their beliefs and attitudes seemed to reflect that more. If they heard one against the death penalty, then their attitudes seemed to move more that way. And here's the kicker. Here's the crazy thing. Then the last thing that happened is they were asked to report the initial opinion they had before they did the study. You follow me? Okay. So it's, they said, uh, here's the quote from, uh, from Daniel. It says, uh, asked to reconstruct their former beliefs, people retrieve their current ones instead. So trying to remember what they used to believe just an hour ago, instead what, they, what comes out of their mouth, they're not trying to be tricksters. It's just so hard that they remember what they already are thinking now instead of what they thought an hour ago. It says people retrieve their current ones instead, an instance of substitution. And many cannot believe that they ever felt differently. Your inability to construct past beliefs will inevitably cause you to underestimate the extent to which you were surprised by those past events. The I knew it all along syndrome, right? Can, can you relate to that? How many times, how many times do we do that? And it's like, what, what does this have to do with faith, Jamin? What are you, why are you talking about this on Sunday morning? Like, I just want to know about, about God. Well, this, is, this has everything to do with it. Because here's, here's the deal. It's exhausting to imagine that we know what we don't know. Oh my gosh, that's so tiring. To try to navigate life and relationships and current events and pretend like we know. We know what's going to happen. It's so hard for us to, to sit and to wait in the, in the restful posture of realizing life is surprising. Life doesn't follow what we want it to. Except in the, in the, fat, in the, in the positions where we just, we sit in a position and we make self-fulfilling prophecies about our life. We make sure that we're always in the position of the victim, the one who's uh, at, uh, getting harmed or hurt. Then we make life seem predictable. But what a small way to live. What a sad place to be in. And so when we think about this, here's what we can say about life. If we want to begin to break out of that, we can say, I do not know, but I wait on the God who does. I do not know, but I wait on the God who does. Right? So not, not only is God different from us in this way that he knows infinitely more than what we do, but the, the writer Isaiah also wants to compare God to other sources of knowledge and power, because it's true what they said, what they said on the, uh, on like public uh, cable television in the 90s and 80s, that knowledge is power, right? Knowledge is power. So here's what he says in verses 23, uh, 25, and 26 about God. He says, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. And then he says, 
To whom will you compare me in verse 25? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. And then verse 28. Do you not know? Here he goes again asking the rhetorical questions. Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. There's a, there's a saying I learned from, from the old folks in the Kojic church as a denomination, uh, uh, a charismatic black denomination that my, my grandmother was a pillar of. She said, uh, and they said, in prayer a lot, uh, God, I thank you that you are God all by yourself, right? That no one compares. So the, the comparisons here are the rulers and princes of the world who, you know, were very uh, concerned about in politics and things like that. Um, and I don't even have the rest of my sermon up here, do I? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Those pages were stuck together. Um, and so he looks here and he compares God to two different things, to the, the rulers of the earth. And he even uses this word when he says the rulers are not to God. He uses the, the Hebrew word tohu, which, which means uh, absolutely nothing. It's the word uh, from Genesis 1-9, where we started this series in. So he's hearkening back um, to uh, God kind of hovering over nothing and creating something. And then he compares God to, to, to something else that the Israelites in Babylon would have been greatly influenced by, and that was the stars, the starry hosts, because the Babylons had gods assigned to the different stars and celestial places. And he said, look, not only are you not God, and God is this other being that thinks and mind cannot be fathomed, by any of you, so you don't think like God. You don't think like God. You don't know what God knows. But those other places of power and authority, they're, they're really not much compared to God. And so here we have a really big picture of who God is. We have a big picture of a God who knows everything, who sits atop of the world and looks down on people like they're grasshoppers, who princes and rulers are, are not or nothing to, to this God. And that just as they're rooted, they, they get blown away like, like a dandelion, right? And so this is definitely a picture of a powerful God. It, it definitely makes me feel small. It definitely gives me a sense that um, there's a lot more to know about this world but it doesn't necessarily bring me comfort. It doesn't necessarily feel like this is a God that cares about me. But uh, this isn't where the, the writer stops. And in fact, I want to I jump forward to Isaiah 57 for a second here in verse 15. And he's talking about this high and exalted God. And he says this, for this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, the everlasting God, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one 
who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Or then again in in Psalm 113, the Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? Another one of these old sayings that just were coming to me uh, for this sermon was, um, I've got a God who sits high but looks low. I've got a God who sits high but looks low. He's God all by himself, and he sits high but he looks low. And Isaiah knows that this combination of ideas that these people already knew about God, but were having such a hard time remembering because of where they were currently, because how their attitudes and beliefs had changed by the circumstances, that they needed to be woken up and reminded of things that they had formally known and believed and understood and seen, just like those volunteers, those participants in that study that we read from about the death penalty. This is the matters and issues related to faith that so often the prophets are engaging us in. So then after he's established these two things, he gets to the crux of this chapter as we move into the conclusion of the sermon. He says in verse 27, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by God. Saying, why do you say God's forgotten you in this pandemic, a home by yourself, with a relative who's sick, with a job that's no longer coming through? In verse 28, he says, do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. Verse 29, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope, many translations say, wait in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I want to talk to you for a moment about that word that says hope in verse 31. It's, it's definitely an appropriate translation in the NIV, but it, it also doesn't quite grasp the full meaning. The word in Hebrew is kwava, kwava. And it means many things, but most of them are related to waiting and resting Um, But Hebrew words evoke pictures. So, for example, the word for meditate in Hebrew, the word sounds like the word that explains what a dove sounds like when it's cooing. So Hebrew words create pictures with, uh, with, with the actual sound of the word and what it evokes and it connects to. And quava the first time it's used is in the book of Genesis again, and it's used to talk about uh, God saying, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear to collect, to collect. So this idea of rest and waiting, it's like when Diane's leading us through uh, a a centering prayer. It's not a centering prayer, but 
Uh, that's that's what that's my go-to explanation because I feel centered because she's she's asking us to become aware around us, but then to kind of collect our consciousness within ourselves, to wet, to, to wait, and to rest. It's hard to do that. It's hard to do that when we're in the position of God. When we're convinced that we understand everything, we know what needs to be done, we know who loves us or hates us, we know what's going to happen to the economy, we know what's going to happen in politics, and we're just waiting to tell everybody, I told you so. It's hard to rest when you're in that state of being, when you're in that state of mind, when you feel like you have a grasp on things and that you actually are the one responsible to control the outcomes of other people's lives. But when you can find yourself in a position where you see God as God all by, God's self, and you see that even though God sits high, that he looks low, then you might be able to spend some time, spend more time resting and waiting. Waiting for what? To be surprised. To be surprised by life. This is the state, this is the state of a person who's able to engage in a creative life. Someone willing to say life is surprising and God is so big and yet God is right here beside me. So when we think about this ever-living, inexhaustible God, that is with us most uh, beautifully seen in the life and the incarnation of God in human form through Jesus, then we might be able to find ourselves increasingly able to rest, able to collect ourselves, not just be so spread out trying to figure it all out all the time. You see, the Israelites in Babylon, they, they didn't know that right on the cusp of what Isaiah was preaching here, there was another ruler coming, a Persian king named Cyrus, who was going to send them back to Jerusalem, let them go back home. The things that they were longing for were right around the corner. Some of them didn't even know how to think about it, how to experience it. And I don't know this for sure, but I bet some of them stayed. I bet some of them stayed in Tel Aviv, a suburb of Tel Aviv where they were uh, in Babylon because their imagination had grown so faint and so dim that they would rather stay in the predictability of where they were than be surprised, than take a risk, than have to think about walking without growing weary. To think about mounting up on eagles' wings just became too scary of a life to live for them. And so they settled for an uncreative, self-fulfillingly unpredictable life. So as we pray and we move to the table of communion, I want us to think about what would it mean to ask God for the courage to be surprised by life to live a life that was more creative, to leave room for possibilities of things we hadn't considered, 
for people and events and circumstances to surprise us because we have a high God who's also right here with us. So let's go ahead and pray. Somebody help me grab this. Lord, thank you uh, for the picture that you've given us in the book of Isaiah of who you are and who we are. I pray that we would be able to meet you here at the table, the reminder of that even though you are a grand and surprising and awesome God, you are also close with us, that you provide for us in the forgiveness of sins, in the communion of the saints with you. Amen.